0: Luke chapter 17. We are uh, finishing up this week this short little series we've been in called We Give Thanks leading up to Thanksgiving. Uh, let me be one of the first to tell you happy Thanksgiving because some of you I won't see this week uh, beyond this morning, but uh, I've enjoyed these, these few weeks just considering this idea of Thanksgiving and we're going to continue that, looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And I want to invite you to stand when you've arrived there. It's all right if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on your screen over here. But Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Here's what, here's what Luke records. While traveling to Jerusalem, he, and that's Jesus passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, they were saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he told them, go and show yourself to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up. And go on your way. Your faith has saved you. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea. Don't forget Thanksgiving. Don't forget Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that as we examine your word, as we consider Jesus, that it would push us to give thanks for all that you have done, but more importantly, for who you are. God, I pray you'll give me physical and spiritual strength to preach to preach your word, for your people are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Don't forget Thanksgiving. As some of you may know, firsthand experience, some of you know this. Parenting, parenting's an adventure. Uh, Some of you who have never parented, just trust me when I tell you that parenting is an adventure, and and one of the things I guess I didn't think about, uh, I didn't think much before I had children, was the fact that when your children are born, they know nothing. Like, like I'm serious, they know nothing. Like, they they don't know that if you're cold, you can go put a sweater on, it'll fix the problem. They don't know that if you leave food out, or better yet, hide it under your bed, that you can't go back to it a few days later, and it still be good. They don't know that the stove is hot right after you take something out of it. They don't care about your degrees or your accomplishments as parents. They don't care about how many parenting books you've read. They know nothing. And so we as parents have the responsibility to to teach them everything that we can. And it, it can be a daunting task. But what's interesting is that something that I've noticed that almost every parent tries to teach their child is gratitude. If you don't believe me, you hang out with any parent of young children. Uh, And I can almost guarantee you that at some point, you will see the parent do something or give something to the child, and the child will take it, and the parent will say to the child, what do you say? What do you say? And if the parents are doing a good job, the child will say, thank you. And the reason for this, the reason that, that parents do this is because we want children to learn that when someone does something for you, when someone serves you or is kind to you or does something that, that you could not otherwise do by yourself, the appropriate response is a response of gratitude. It's a response of thankfulness. You know, it's a good lesson to teach children you know, we as adults can often forget that lesson, can't we? I was reminded of this a few years back. I won't say who. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. no one you would know, but I got in trouble uh, for failing to show gratitude one time. I had received uh, a gift. It was, I can't remember what it was, birthday gift, Christmas present, something along those lines. I received it. I liked it. It was a great gift, and I went about my day, I come to find out that I spent some time with this person a few months later, and they were, they were not too happy with me, and I didn't quite understand why they weren't happy with me. I didn't, I didn't understand why they were frustrated, and then I came to learn that it was because I never said thank you for the gift that they had sent me. And I'll be honest, at first I was like, all right, come on, that's a little petty. I thought to myself, why is this such a big deal? But the more I consider it, it was a big deal because it was a big deal for the same reason I try to teach my children. When someone does something for you, when someone serves you or is kind to you or does something for you that you could not otherwise do by yourself, the appropriate response is a response of gratitude. And that moment got me thinking. It, It forced me to kind of examine myself and ask the question of, are there more areas in my life where I forget to give thanks. And sadly, as I examine myself, I realized that the relationship where I often express the least amount of thanksgiving is in the relationship that matters more than any other. It's my relationship with the Lord. That is the area in my life where I can probably lack the most thanksgiving. And perhaps... That's you as well this morning. So, so here's my, my goal this morning. I'm just going to tell you right up front. My hope, my aim is to encourage you so that you won't forget Thanksgiving. That you won't forget to give thanks for who God is and what he has done for you. And so as we walk through these verses in Luke chapter 17, I want to remind you why we have reason to give thanks and present you... With, with two potential responses, and hopefully <clears throat> hopefully it will spur us on to offer thanksgiving to our God, for He has done great things. So as we begin, let me start by giving you let me start by giving you a reason for Thanksgiving, right off the bat. Here's, here's the first thing that I want you to see. God knows your situation. God knows your situation. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Luke records this, it says, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee as he entered a village. Ten men with leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance. Luke records that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, so just let me give you a little bit of context. This, this encounter is towards the end, end of Jesus' ministry on earth. At this point, Jesus has his eyes fixed on the cross. This will be the last time that he enters Jerusalem before his crucifixion, before the triumphal entry is about to occur, before the garden, before the sham trials, and ultimately before Christ's death on a cross. And so Luke tells us that while all this is in Jesus' mind, while all this is about to take place and Jesus knows it, He passes between Samaria and Galilee. Now at first glance, that might seem a little bit like a trivial detail in the story, but it's actually not. It's very interesting. See, here's what's interesting about it. From where Jesus was, he would need to go south to get to Jerusalem. But to pass between Samaria and Galilee would force Jesus to go north from where... So the complete opposite direction as to where he was heading... And so a lot of people have speculated about why that is. If Jesus' plan is to go to Jerusalem, if he has his eyes fixed on the cross, why is it that he would go north instead of south? Why is it he'd go away from Jerusalem instead of move towards Jerusalem? And there's been a lot of suggestions about why this is. And so some people have argued that, man, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, it's actually just out of chronological order. Meaning it it really happened in Jesus' life, but it's almost as if Luke didn't know where to put it in the story, so he just throws it in right here, and it doesn't make that much of a difference to the story. And that's one opinion. But others have suggested that, well, it makes logical sense that he would travel north because the the pilgrimage of people coming from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus would most likely want to meet up with them so that as they traveled to Jerusalem, he could fulfill the the prophecy, the triumphal entry could take place. And so Jesus was heading north, ultimately to meet up with the pilgrimage heading down to Jerusalem. I think it's a viable solution. I actually agree with that solution. But for me, the solution's even more simple than that. I'm not trying to discredit the other solutions. I am trying to discredit the people travel. Order one, I don't think that's right. But I'm not trying to discredit the, the going to meet up with the people traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. I think that's a, a viable option. Again, allowing the triumphal entry, the fulfillment of prophecy. But for me, based on the text, the the solution is so much simpler than that. Here's the solution. There were 10 men who needed to encounter Jesus. There were 10 men who believed that if Jesus showed up, everything could change. And here it is. Jesus wanted to encounter these 10 men. And you know why I think that's a good solution, a simple solution, but a good solution? Because isn't that just like our God? Our God is a God who leaves the 99 to pursue the one. Matthew 18, 12 through 14, what do you think if someone has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over the sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, It is not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Our God is a God who draws near to the hurting and the broken. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Our God sympathizes with our weakness. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God knows His creation. God knows our situation. God knows where we are and what we need. And here it is. God pursues us in the midst of that it does not seem that far-fetched for me to believe that God in flesh would go out of his way to encounter people who desperately need him because that is exactly how God pursued some of you Listen, not everyone grew up in a Christian home surrounded by Christian people and came to know Jesus in the pew of a church. Listen, I praise God for people. That's your story. That's my story. I'm not neglecting that story. But that's not everybody's testimony. Some of you God called while you were at the club and realized there had to be more to life than this. Some of you, God called the morning after that one night stand when you were filled with regret and shame. Some of you, God called when you were at the lowest point and you could not have been further further from God. Some of you, God called, and there is no logical reason as to why you are the person you are now, except for the fact that God knew where you were and he went out of his way to pursue you. God knows his creation, God knows your situation. But can I tell you some more good news? He did not just know your situation when He saved you, He knows your situation now. God knows what is going on in your life, God knows the winds. And he knows the losses. God knows the stuff that no one else knows about, that you would dare not tell anyone, that stuff that you walked into here with and pleaded with God that it would not ever come out. God knows what you are most ashamed of, and even still, he pursues you. There has not been a moment when God has given up on you. And so let me just pause there and say this. This alone is a reason to give thanks. That God knows who you are. God knows where you are. God knows the depths of your heart and your soul better than you even do. Nothing is hidden from him. And yet he still loves you. I don't know, that's, that's an encouragement to me. It reminds me that God is not deterred because we are in need. God's not deterred because we are in need. And, and I have to remind myself of that. Like, do you know how often I feel like I am to God what I perceive my children to be to me? And maybe you're a better parent than me, which is probably highly likely. And so you don't feel this way. But sometimes I feel like it's a constant refrain of dad, 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 dad. I need this. I need that. Dad, get my water. Right? Like, that, that's, that's what I... And I can get deterred by the needs of my children. Yeah, that's not our God. Our God will listen to dad, 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 dad. I need this. I'm hurting. Can you help me? And he's never deterred by our need. That leads to the second thing I want you to see this morning, the second truth from our text. God, God actually welcomes our requests. God welcomes our requests. Look at verse 13. It says, They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now there are some interesting things to note here even in this one verse. First, I I want you to note where they are. It says that they stood at a distance. Remember, these are men who have leprosy, and so they stand at a distance. And we have to remember that the, the Levitical law actually forbid people with leprosy from, be, uh, from being in the city. They had to stay outside of it. We see that in Leviticus 34, verse 46, where it says, He will remain unclean as long as he has the disease and he is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. So these were essentially the outcasts of the city. They were the people that other people typically avoided at all costs. They were the epitome of what it meant to be dejected and lowly. And and we got to have a little bit of sympathy for just how bad their plight was. Right? So so, uh, Thabiti and, and Yabuile helps us to understand how hard their life must have been when he writes this in his commentary on Luke. He says, The disease sometimes contagious, made them unclean according to Jewish law. So they had to be isolated from the city and from people. Now listen to this. He writes, whenever or wherever lepers traveled, they were to call out unclean, unclean, as a warning to others to stay away from them. How difficult it must have been to be required to be the prophet of your own uncleanness the herald of your own unworthiness before God. Imagine the burden of having to tell everyone you encounter that you are unclean. These ten men couldn't even get close to Jesus by law. They had to stand at a distance. Now I have to imagine, I mean, uh, uh, imagine the scene with me, right? Jesus is known at this point. He's coming to the end of his ministry. He's been ministering in the area. People know that, man, this is a guy that heals people with a word. This is a guy who has raised people from the dead. We don't know exactly who he is, but there's something about this guy. And you can imagine that there was probably a lot of people that wanted to gather around Jesus. And yet it seems, based on the law itself, the people who needed him the most, were forced to stay far away from him. They couldn't even get close. They had to stand at a distance and all they could do was shout and hope that Jesus heard them. But I don't only, I don't only want you to note where they were, I want you to note what they said. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, I I don't know. There's something about that declaration that just resonates with me. Because they didn't declare, Jesus, heal us. Now, now that was a significant aspect of what they wanted. Don't, Don't get it wrong. But as I read that, Jesus, Master... Have mercy on us. Not, Jesus, Master, do this specific thing because this is what I want and this is what I know is best. They just cry out, have mercy. It seems to me like you have a group of men who are just desperate for Jesus to do something. They are desperate for Him to just see them. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking that perhaps... Perhaps the reason that resonates so much with me is because I've been there too. Right? I've been in those moments when you know what you're going through, when the situation you are in is just so much, and on top of that, you just you don't even know what you need anymore. And all you can say is, God, have mercy. But the amazing thing is that God will have mercy. Because look at the beginning of verse 14. Four words so profound. When he saw them. See, here's here's the thing, and I want you to hear this and, and believe this. Jesus is not turned away by our desperation. And God is not frustrated by our need. In fact, he welcomes it. That's why scripture tells us in 1 Peter 5 7 to cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. Not just the big ones, not just the ones you know you can't do on your own. Cast all your cares because he cares for you. We're invited to come before God even when we don't know what to say. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. On top of that, God actually delights in your prayers. Proverbs 15, verse 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright, check this out, It's his delight. He delights in us making our requests. No. We can't miss this. The majesty of the fact that not only do we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, but the fact that God delights in it and wants it from us to come. He wants us to come before him with everything. In fact, he doesn't just want it, he commands it. Philippians 4.6, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And when should we do this? We'll go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray constantly. You see, I want you to see how different God is from us, how different Jesus is in this moment, because let's, let's be honest for a minute. We have a propensity to turn away from those in the greatest need. We do. We can drive by that person that we see on the corner every morning when we go to work. And we have a propensity to turn away. We can see those with great need or great struggle or even great sickness. And we have a propensity to turn away. But God, God sees that need, He knows your situation, and He welcomes you. He delights in you. And so again, pause, <clears throat> because this too should cause us to give thanks. That God has given us something we don't deserve, access to Him through Jesus, and He delights. He welcomes our requests. And here's the third truth, the third reason we have to give thanks. God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Look at look at verse 14 there. It says when he saw them he told them go and show yourselves to the priest and while they were going they were cleansed go and show yourself to the priest and while they were going <clears throat> they were cleansed now now this verse of scripture see th- these are the verses of scriptures that get that get preachers excited because this verse will preach there is something going on in this verse that I don't want you to miss. This moment, this encounter with this ten, these ten lepers, it's not like some of the other encounters Jesus has had with those who are sick and in need. Because typically, when we think of Jesus healing, we think of those times when he healed on the spot, don't we? Like right away they were healed. I think of the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8 who just touched the hem of Jesus' robe and she was healed. Like I think of the, para, the paralytic man in Luke chapter 5 who's lowered down through the window, or through the, the roof. And Jesus tells him to take up his mat and walk. Or you can look back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus encountered another leper who fell at his feet and said, if you are willing, heal me. And Jesus says, I am willing. He touched the leper and the man was healed. See, those, those are the encounters I typically think of when I think of Jesus healing. But this encounter in Luke chapter 17, it's different. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he says, go and show yourself to the priest. Now let's pause there. Because there are a couple of questions we have to ask and answer if we're going to make sense of this. First, why would Jesus do this? Why would he send them to the priest? <clears throat> that, was, that was my first question. Well, the answer to that is found in Leviticus 14, verses 2 through 9. Listen to what's written in Leviticus 14, verses 2 through 9. This, This is the law concerning the person afflicted with a skin disease on the day of his cleansing. He is to be brought to the priest who will go outside the camp and examine him. If the skin disease has disappeared from this afflicted person, the priest will order that two live birds and two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. Then the priest will order that one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in a clay pot. He is to take the live bird together with the cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop and dip them all into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He will then sprinkle the blood seven times on the one who is to be cleansed from the skin disease. He is to pronounce him clean and release the live bird over the open court side. The one who is to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair and bathe with water. He is clean. Afterward, He may enter the camp, but he must remain outside his tent for seven days. He is to shave all of his hair again on the seventh day, his head, his beard, his eyebrows, and the rest of his hair. He is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Then he is clean. Let me just say this. I am so glad we live on this side of the cross. Just throwing that out there. I am glad that I don't have to be responsible for making sure that you shave your eyebrows. But let me summarize what's going on here. It's, it's really quite simple. It was the priest's responsibility to verify that someone was no longer infected and then to ceremonially cleanse them before they could return to the community. That's what's going on. It was the priest's responsibility to verify that the person was actually cleared of the disease, he didn't have it anymore, and then to ceremonially ceremonially cleanse the person so that the community could know and the person could know that they were welcome back together. Let me just side note here. Jesus is modeling faith because he's depending on the Word of God. Jesus could have just cleansed him on the spot. He'd done it before, but Jesus thought it significant to show the people around them that the word of God matters. Do with that as you will. So this is why Jesus sent them, because it was the priest's responsibility to verify that they were clean, that they no longer had the disease, and then to ceremonially cleanse them, to welcome them back into the community. But here's the second question we have to ask. It was the second question that I asked. Why would Jesus send them if they weren't healed yet? Why would Jesus send them if they weren't healed yet? Because here's the thing they knew why they needed to go see the priest. They knew what Jesus was implying, that they were healed. But here you have ten men being told to go see the priest to verify that they are healed, and yet they look down and they still see the skin of a leper. Oh, church, this will preach. This will preach. You see, our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God is an already-not-yet kind of God, meaning that God's promises are so sure. God's rule is so great. God's sovereignty is so uncontested. He is so good that when He makes a promise, you can bank on it already being done before you have yet seen the evidence of its fulfillment. God has never written a check that he can't cash. He's never made a promise then had something come up and change his plans. What what I'm trying to get you to see is that God is not like us. You see, I can make a promise to you, but that doesn't mean that I will keep it. I can say I will do something, but circumstances beyond my control might end up changing my plans. But that has never been an issue for God. Our God sits outside of time and space, so all of his promises are already fulfilled. The issue is that we live inside time and space, and so we just haven't seen them all fulfilled yet. You, you see me, church? Something you don't know about me is, is like I'm church-churched, okay, like Some of y'all church, church, too. I'm, I'm church, church. I grew up in church knowing all the sayings. Some of you did, too, right? Let's put it to the test. God is good. And all the time. Oh, we church, church. He is risen. Okay, okay, but... But here's the one I'm getting at. You see, I heard all the sayings, and there was one that always stood out to me. I'm going to see if you know it, and we're going to put you to the test. God may not come when you want him to, but he's always on time. Now, I can admit this to you. Listen, listen, I can admit this. When I first heard it at a young age, I didn't fully understand it. But now that I've walked with God for a little bit, I understand a little bit better what that's trying to communicate. You see, here it is. The question is never, will God deliver? The question is, when will God deliver? The question is never, will God heal and restore? The question is, when will God heal and restore? The question is never, will God keep his word? The question is always, when will we see its fulfillment? In other words, God keeps his promises. And I know, I know. Church, I know I've been talking about this a lot lately. We talked about it a lot in Esther, providence of God. We've talked, we've talked a lot about it in the midst of, the, of, this, excuse me, of this series on Thanksgiving. And you might be tired of hearing it, but I'm just going to tell you I'm not tired of saying it. That God keeps his promises because I want you to know as your pastor who loves you dearly, I don't really have much better news to offer you than that that God keeps his promises. You do know that the gospel we believe is a result of God keeping his promises. When God said to Satan in Genesis 3:15 that I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel, right? When God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, that I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Or when God said to david in second samuel 7 12 and 13 when your time time comes and you go to rest with your ancestors i will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever or maybe we could look at when god spoke through isaiah in isaiah seven fourteen, 14 it says therefore the lord himself will give you a sign See the virgin will conceive have a son and his name will be called Emmanuel or maybe we could look at the vision in in Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 where it says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. God has made promises throughout the entirety of Scripture. But then we look at what Paul says in Galatians 4, chapter, or verses 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The best news that I can tell you is that our God keeps His promises. And if this is true, then we should do what the psalmist calls us to and what we read together this morning in Psalm 100, verse 1, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Or like he says in verses four and five, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. God might not come when you want him, but he's always on time. And let me just say this, and we'll come back to it in a minute, but let me just say this. If the fact that God keeps his promises has grown stale for you, if you can listen to the truth that God keeps his word, and it doesn't cause that real shout of praise to come out of your mouth, if it does not move you to praise and to rejoice and to sing and to declare amen, I know which of the two responses you're going to have that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But before I get there, I have to finish this point, and I have to make mention of something. While the truth of God keeping His promises rings true in verse 14 so does our call to believe that because do not miss this the 10 men had a real choice before them jesus said go to the priests, verify that you're clean they looked down and saw leper spots they had two options they could go or they could say this guy's crazy They could do what Jesus said to do and start walking to the priest even though they had not received the healing or they could have refused. And I don't want you to miss this. To walk required faith. To be healed required faith. How embarrassing if they showed up at the priest's and their leper spots were still there. But look at what it says in verse 14 at the very end. And while they were going, they were cleansed. And Jesus says this in John 20, verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. See, this is faith. To believe even though we have not seen. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. Faith. Faith is believing in our already not yet God. It is believing that if God said it. Even if you don't see it. It's coming because God is good. But I want you to to pay attention to verse 19 as well because this has been misunderstood a little bit. It says, and he told him, get up and go on your way. So he says this to the one man who came back. We'll get to that in a moment. But he says, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Now, I want to make something clear. Jesus is not saying that the man had enough faith to be healed. That's not what he's saying, because that's gotten so twisted in our day and age, right? If the reason that you're struggling, the reason things aren't going out, the reason uh, things aren't working out, the reason that you don't have what you what you want, the reason that you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, it's all a result uh, of you not having enough faith. And so the call comes out: if you just have more faith, God will do all of this stuff. And, and they will refer to verses like this. But I want to be clear: Jesus is not saying that the man had enough faith to be healed. I know that to be true because the faith of a mustard seed will move mountains. Jesus is saying, again, not that the man had enough faith to be healed, but that the man had faith in the right healer. He had faith in a God who loves his people, who knows their situation, who welcomes their requests. He had faith in a good God. And if God is that good, We have two responses and two responses only. There really are only two options. And this is the final thing I want you to see this morning, the two two responses. Look at verses 15 through 18 again. It says, But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. But then Jesus said, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now, there's a, there's a whole aspect at play here of the Samaritan. And the implication is that the other nine were Jews I'm not even gonna talk about that. Okay, we can we'll have that's a that's a whole nother conversation. But what I but what I want you to see in verses 15 through 18 in these last few verses is that we encounter two different responses. First, from the man who came back, and I love his response because it is the appropriate response to encountering the promise keeping God after being given a gift from a savior. It says, he returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that this man's response is the right response. I pray, I pray that we never get so high and mighty in ourselves that we think we are too good to fall flat before our Savior. Like I don't I don't know where I really don't I'm not trying to harp on this. I don't know where we got this notion that to be mature in faith was to be stoic and and somber all the time because to me the mature people of actually I know exactly where I learned that. I did at least some people who had bow ties tied a little too tight. Um <laughs> mm, cut that one out. Uh when I look at Scripture, the mark of maturity that I see is a man who was willing to dance before his God. A man who was willing to shout and scream the glory of God and fall face down at his feet, not carrying a lick what the crowds thought. This response of praise and adoration and thanksgiving is the only appropriate response. This man returned. After having been given a gift, he comes back, he shouts his praises to God, falls down in humility, giving thanks to the one who has given him so much. And while he is thankful for the gift of healing, please hear this, he he is more so thankful for the person who gave the gift. That's why he comes back to Jesus. But Jesus points something out for us. Nine of them did not come back, but I would argue that they too were thankful. I know you might be like, well, Michael, that's counterintuitive to your point. Well, here it is. I believe they were thankful, right? They were healed as well. They believed that Jesus could heal them as well. And they walked to the priest, still having the spots on their body as well. They were healed. I believe that they were thankful. They were thankful they could go to the priest. They were thankful that they could return to society. They were thankful for the gift. But what they neglected was the giver. You see, this one man came back because he was thankful for the person who gave the gift. The nine were only thankful for the gift. Now, I want to mention something because this is so important. They were not wrong for being thankful for the gift. You and I have been given a gift in Jesus Christ. We should be thankful for the gift. But where they were wrong was that they cherished the gift more than the giver. And we can do the same thing. We can be more thankful that we are not going to hell than we are about the fact we get to dwell with God. But here's why this is a problem. In this story at least, this is not all the gifts God gives, but in this story with this gift, the gift that they were given was only temporary. It was only temporary. Because at some point in their life, another sickness would come another hardship would come, another need would arise. And if their thanksgiving is tied solely to the gift, their thanksgiving will fade when the gift fades. But I would contend with you this morning that the man who returns who saw Jesus as precious and worthy and saw Jesus as good, he will have a thanksgiving that endures when the next sickness comes, when the next hardship comes and when the next need arises because his thanksgiving is focused first on the giver and second on the gift. His delight is not primarily in the gift but in the one who gave it, in the one who saw him. In the one who heard his cry for mercy. And what I want to leave you with this morning is this. Don't forget Thanksgiving. I'm not just talking about Thursday, but every day of your life. Don't forget to come back to the Savior. And to declare the glory of God and to fall before him and give thanks. Give thanks first for who God is. A God who knows your situation. A God who welcomes your request. A God who keeps his promises. And then give thanks for the gift he has given you through Jesus Christ because I don't know if you know this, God isn't only good because you're saved. God would still be good even if you weren't. We give thanks for who God is and then what He has done, but I don't want to make light for a moment of what God has done. The fact that God, Though we sin, though we are rebels and enemies, this God has made a way for us to become children and friends. Like Paul said in Galatians 4, for when the time came to completion, God sent his son. When we couldn't get to God, when we couldn't do enough right things to, to earn our favor with God, and I just want to throw that out there, not a one of you is good enough to earn the favor of God because the Bible tells us in James 2.10 that if you keep the law and yet stumble, in one point you're guilty of all of it. One sin is enough to make you a lawbreaker, condemned and deserving of hell. We cannot get to God, but God loves us so much that when the time came to completion, he kept his promise, and he sent his son who was born of a woman born under the law. But here's the thing, he kept the law perfectly in every area where we have failed. He was the only one who did not deserve to die and yet he willingly came to redeem those under the law. He took our place and died on a cross taking our penalty for sin and rebellion and wickedness And God poured out the full measure of his his hatred and wrath of sin on his own son. And he died on that cross and was buried. And we believe that he was raised three days later. So as Paul says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. As Paul says in Romans 4 or 5, I can't remember. he He was crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justification. We can come to God through faith and repentance and be adopted as sons, not because we've done everything right, but because Jesus did and died in our place. But I want to tell you that takes faith. Not just a one-moment faith, but a faith that endures throughout our life where we will continually and consistently fall back on the fact that the only good thing we have is a God who loves us, who has saved us, And who has called us according to his purpose. So I'm done. Let me just say. Don't forget. To give thanks. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father. You have been so, so good to us. Because you are so, so good. You are a God who knows us. You know our weakness. You know our struggle. You know our situation. And yet, any one of us who is in Christ can testify, you pursued us. You pursued us. And God, we know that you welcome our request. You want us to dwell in fellowship with you. And I pray that that would be a cause for our Thanksgiving. God, I thank you that you are a promise-keeping God, that you are an already-not-yet God, that your promises, even the ones we haven't seen come to complete fruition, they are as good as done because you have never gone back on your word. You have been and will always be faithful. And we praise you for that. And so, Lord, my request is that the Holy Spirit would cultivate in each and every one of your children, myself included, a heart of thanksgiving. That even when more sickness comes, even when more hardship comes, that we would still give thanks because we know who you are and that we belong to you. And nothing can change that. And God, I pray for anyone here who may not have ever trusted in Jesus. I pray that those few sentences I shared about what you have done for us would ring true in their hearts, that they would know that their sin separates them from you and that we are by nature children of your wrath, but you loved us so much that rather than destroy us, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the debt that we owe. crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, and that you invite us to come through faith and repentance by believing in what Jesus has done for us and agreeing with you that your way is right and ours is not. God, by doing so, anyone can be made right with you, and I pray that if there is someone here who is not who has not been reconciled to you, that they would believe those truths and find you as good and glorious and Savior. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.